Wrong. Wrong thing to do. They should not have done it. I told him, I said, don't do it, because if you do it, I'm going to tax your wine. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. In his four years as president, I've found I haven't agreed with Donald Trump on everything. But when he laid into the French tax on the revenues of digital companies a while back, he had a point. The international tax system wasn't built for a world of online shopping and complex global supply chains. But one country acting alone isn't going to fix it. Everyone, including the French, agrees we really need a global solution. But for that, you need the US and the rest of the world to agree on the best way to divide up the profits of those big tech giants. And that is proving very difficult indeed. In a minute, I'll be talking to the Frenchman stuck in the middle of this, the official who has to find a way through or risk another round of nasty US-Europe trade wars. We'll also be going to Abidjan in the Ivory Coast, to hear about the global chocolate war, what it means for the price of Hershey's kisses this Christmas. But first, a short introduction to the battle over the future of tax from our French economy reporter, William Horobin. Merci, chers collègues. Je mets au voix l'ensemble du projet de loi portant création d'une taxe sur les services numériques et modification de la trajectoire de baisse de l'impôt sur les sociétés. It's 1 a.m. in the French Senate on Tuesday, May 22, 2019. In the 19th century chamber, the president of the session, Tani Mohamed Soliyi, is submitting to a vote the world's first tax on the digital revenues of multinational tech giants. Voici le résultat du scrutin numéro 122 sur l'ensemble du texte, compte tenu de l'ensemble des délégations de vote accordées par les sénateurs au groupe politique et notifié à la présidence. Nombre de votants, 343. The calm passing of the bill, with only four votes against, reflected an unquestioning support in France for making tech giants pay more tax. Then this happened. France put on a, uh, a tax on our companies, you know that. And wrong, wrong thing to do. They should not have done it. They didn't do the right thing when they start taxing our companies. We tax our companies. They don't tax our companies. So France did that. I told him, I said, don't do it, because if you do it, I'm going to tax your wine, ring tariff or tax, quarter, whatever you want. So, yeah, we're working on that right now. The transatlantic clash is, in fact, just the tip of an iceberg. Below the surface, there is a far broader battle over the future of taxation, trade, and the authority of nations as the global economy turns digital. Governments see sovereignty slipping away as they struggle to tax globe-trotting firms with market capitalizations that dwarf the GDP of most nations. Traditional firms that face the costs and tax bills of having a physical presence are crying foul as their custom goes elsewhere. And even the global tech giants are voicing concern about navigating a growing thicket of unilateral measures and punitive levies. The US has started investigations into taxes like France's in at least 10 other countries, from the UK to Italy, India and Indonesia. The COVID crisis has done nothing to unwind the tension. On the contrary, locked down in their homes, consumers have moved online like never before to work, shop, eat and entertain themselves. 
Meanwhile, governments are clocking up vast debts as they bail out bricks and mortar firms on the verge of collapse. Any hope for a solution to taxation in the digital age rides on negotiations at the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. But there's a problem. The talks on the rules of tax involve nearly 140 countries and have been dragging on for years. Among the many issues still to resolve, the most divisive is the scope of new tax rules, with Europeans wanting to single out digital companies and the US demanding no such ring-fencing of firms that are, in the most part, American. With no swift deal in sight, a truce in the battle between France and the Trump administration is about to break. The French government is resuming the collection of its tax on digital revenues this month, and the US is set to retaliate in early January with taxes on $1.3 billion of emblematic French goods, including handbags and cosmetics. If that happens, France says the EU must immediately retaliate. All this puts digital tax at the top of Joe Biden's list of problems when he takes office. To solve it, he'll need to bridge a transatlantic divide. Here's French finance minister Bruno Le Maire. The UK, Spain, Italy, Austria have accepted to launch their own digital taxation because we are all aware that this is a question of fairness. You cannot have the digital giants paying less taxes than SMEs and than the smallest private companies in Europe. I really hope that this new Biden's administration will mean a new start in the relationship between uh, Europe and the United States. Well, if we're going to get nearly 140 countries to agree something in the next 12 months, it's only going to be after Herculean efforts by the individual we're going to talk to now. Pascal Saint-Amand, director of the Centre for Tax Policy at the OECD in Paris. Uh, Pascal, thank you so much for, for coming on Stephanomics. We heard, a little, we heard a little bit from William Horobin there, but as far as you're concerned, what's at stake in these negotiations? Well, what is at stake is some form of economic peace, in particular between the US and Europe. Um, the dispute is about uh, how countries could better share the taxation of digital companies. That's where the Europeans, and not only the Europeans, the rest of the world have been very frustrated for the past 10 years, saying these companies are deriving a lot of profits from our markets and we cannot tax them. And we cannot tax them because we're stuck with rules which were designed one century ago, which uh, prevent us from taxing companies because they are not physically present on our market. Therefore, we cannot collect anything. These companies are making billions and these billions were untaxed until recently. Now, they may be taxed in the US, but we want our fair share. And the US in response to that says, but this profit belongs to me. It's, it's profit by American companies. And there is no reason for me to let you tax them. And by the way, if we find a solution, it shouldn't be ring fence to digital companies because the problem we're facing is a global problem for all companies. So we've been struggling with that for the past three years and we have an extension. Unfortunately, not until the end of 21, but the end of the first semester of 21. So the challenge is even bigger because we need to find consensus in the next six months, basically. <laughs> it just seems like it's going to be really difficult. Um, uh, 
I mean, I guess one question is we, we've we've started to think that tech giants, uh, these enormous companies, are sort of bigger than any one government. I mean, can governments actually prevail against these companies? Well, that's a good question, and indeed, uh, there is a, a challenge there. Maybe the first thing to say is that until we did a big G20 OECD initiative known under the, the BEPS acronym, that was a big effort by the G20 to try to bring some form of tax regulation to globalization and say multinational companies can locate their profits very easily in tax havens in a complete legal manner. And we did change that. In 2015, we came up with a new set of rules, and these rules have translated in the US tax reform. Until 2016-17, the tech companies, among others, it's not limited to tech, could have an effective tax rate on their foreign source income close to zero. Now, they are taxed in the US at least at 10%. So you can see that governments can act when they want to act. But the question which is left is, how do you share these profits? Is it taxable only in the US or elsewhere? How you share profits of multinational companies depend on what we call tax treaties, which are international tax instruments. There are 3,500 instruments. And today, these instruments provide for a country to tax a foreign company when this foreign company has a physical presence in the country. This dates back to 1928, brick and mortar economy. That's what we need to change. But again, if we change it, it shouldn't be only on tech companies. But you may raise the same question for Louis Vuitton, the French you know, luxury company. They manufacture bags. They design the good French taste, right? So French good taste. So they say, it belongs to us. But the Chinese who buy the bags may say, well, sorry, part of the value creation belongs to us. So the question of how you share the profit is not limited to tech companies. And governments, I think, if they act together, can change the rules. So companies are not in a position to block, but it's more for governments to make the effort to try to reach consensus. And that's not easy, especially as you said it, we have 140 countries around the table. If we don't get these countries agreeing on something, the risk we face is trade tensions, trade wars and, and you know the French are trying to move on their own and the US is retaliating and Europe may retaliate to the retaliation and that's where you end up with a trade war which would harm growth further and after COVID we, we don't need any other hurdle on, on growth. So um, you know the, the, the counterfactual is the best reason to try to find an agreement. We've been talking on this podcast about the new players in the Biden administration. How do you think the Biden administration can change this or even break the logjam? That's a very good question. And like very good questions, there is no answer yet. We do not know. What, what has happened is, is, however, quite interesting and much more complex than people think. First, when we did the BEPS project back in 2013, 14, and 15, the Obama administration at that time said there is no problem with digital. Let's not talk about that. We'll revisit that in 2020 after all these measures are implemented. So the US was very negative, Obama administration. Very paradoxically, the Trump administration, which was not known for being multilateralist, right, said, well, let's have a conversation. The US changed its approach and kind of told the French, you want to tax Google, you're right, you're the market, but we want to tax your companies because we are 
their market. And that's where the conversation started in 2017, paradoxically, the door being opened by the Trump administration. Now, it is true that in 2020, this year, the Trump administration has got cold feet because the election was approaching, because companies were not sure whether they wanted to change or not. And at the end of the day, I mean, uh, progress lagged behind and, and we didn't deliver the solution by year end as planned. So what will the Biden administration do? We hope that they will continue the negotiation, that they will say we want a solution, and that they will take some leadership to indicate what is the solution they want. I think all the other countries are ready to take what the US would tell them, if it's fair enough. Uh, and and that's, will, but that's what we will see, we shall see, I hope, uh, soon. And we must see it soon because we have only six months. And after six months, countries will move unilaterally because it's been years they've been waiting. So uh, the Biden administration will probably have to disclose quite soon what their position is. This negotiation has actually got bigger and bigger in part because of the, the Trump administration's uh, approach. Um, is it the case that you have to agree this whole new system for taxing companies globally in order to resolve the digital question? Or are you hopeful that maybe there's a halfway house? There is a menu of options. Uh, one option would be to say, what is the dispute? The dispute is on a few highly digitalized companies. And one could say, let's sort this out first, and then take more time to sort out the more fundamental problems of the international tax framework. But this crosses the red line fixed by the US so far in a bipartisan manner, which is no ring fencing. So you have here a contradiction. You could do an easy fix, a quick fix, but this crosses a red line. Because that would be just too much one-way traffic for the US. It's a one-way traffic. It yeah. means that the US pays a check to the rest of the world, right? I mean, you, you have a free lunch on American companies and we give a tax credit, which means that we transfer taxing rights to you. So and, you can understand why they would say that. Well, absolutely. And the US has a fair point to say, one, why would we be interested in paying a check to the rest of the world uh, when they unfairly attacked American business? Because that's the US perception. Uh, and two, we cannot really ring fence. So that's a way to, to do a quick fix, may not work. Then what we could do, and, and it wouldn't take years, is to have a broader scope, but that's for the US to say what they want in that scope digital companies, consumer-facing businesses, which was the latest position of the US administration, where there is the sustained engagement of a company with the uh, customers, the, with the consumers, the final consumers on the market, that, 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 that would be the area where you would, you would create the new taxing right, where you would give to the markets a new taxing right, and that we can do. And that we can do in the next six months because we're ready. Technically, we're ready, almost. We are very well advanced and just waiting for political agreement to press the button and get it uh, uh, up and running. 
we should probably uh, we should pause for a second to paint the scene a little bit because people, listeners who are not so familiar with the with the OECD, when you talk about technical work, uh, that is what the OECD is famous for, and you sit in the, the wonderful office, wonderful offices in a, in a very nice part of Paris, uh, and have tended to be very good at technical work, not always so good at reaching fast agreements uh, and having dynamic progress uh, on things. Objection! Objection! <laughs> I think you bring the OECD as it was 20 years ago. I, I, I hope we kept the uh, the expertise and the, the technical quality. And you've kept the nice buildings, it should be said. And we kept the nice building as well. Your point on, yeah, that's a good at, at, at providing uh, political breakthrough. It's no longer true. Um, uh, let me give you two examples. 2008, global financial crisis. 2008, for the first time, the G20 meets at the leaders' level and they say, we need to put an end to bank secrecy. The OECD delivered the end of bank secrecy in two years' time. We listed countries, we provided a standard, we provided a multilateral convention to implement that standard. Ten years later, where we are, not a single country in the world has bank secrecy left. Last September, 84 million bank accounts were exchanged. Switzerland, I mean, the temple of bank secrecy, exchanged more than 3 million bank accounts with the countries where the people live, having bank accounts in Switzerland, for a total value of 10 trillion US dollars. 10 trillion. That's a concrete example. Second one, until 2012, multinational companies could locate their profits wherever they wanted. Tax Avoidance, it was an easy game to play. We came up with an action plan and we told the G20, we are going to change international tax rules. It used to take 20 years to change a comma and dot in OECD guidelines. We did all these changes, 15 changes in two years time. And as a result, you have hundreds of billions of taxes which are being collected on multinational companies which were not in the past. It is true that on the digital project, it takes more time because it's more complex, because big countries are more divided, but we're there. We have all these people coming together, exchanging information, sharing the same goal, which is to strengthen their tax sovereignty by cooperation, but we'll also have, I think, a high-level agreement. The question is more of the timing. So I think we've, we've been more than just uh, 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 happy technocrats in Paris. So there you have it. Uh, for, for years, I think people, some people would have said, what's the OECD for? But, but quite seriously, it turns out this is what it can be for, trying to fix these really incredibly difficult problems that we face with a move to a, to a digital economy. So Pascal, where does this go from here? You've talked about the Biden administration. You've talked about the timing. Uh, I can't help noticing that there's been some talk about the middle of next year and then maybe the end of next year. Realistically, how likely is it uh, that this is going to get resolved in the next six to 12 months? I don't know. Uh, there is a real level of uncertainty, which makes it exciting, right, for observers, a bit stressing when you're an insider. Um, we, we need to wait for the Biden administration to give indications, and I think they are reflecting on that. They need to make up their minds and send a message to the rest of the world, and, and it will largely depend on, on their message, whether they want to play ball or not, uh, what they will do on the 
on the trade front, uh, given that before leaving the Trump administration will inflict sanctions on the French uh, because the French are moving unilaterally with their digital service tax. Um, we, we, we have a fair chance of reaching an agreement. And at the leader's level, there is the sense that not only it is possible, but it is wishable that we reach an agreement. And against that background, we can be optimistic that, that something positive will happen, even though we don't know yet, and, and it's up for the Biden administration to decide which direction they will, they will want to go. Countries would rather avoid the trade tensions, especially in the post-COVID environment. I mean, this is, if you take some distance, this is a tiny issue in the grand schemes of things. So we should not have, uh, uh, we should not harm growth for this. And uh, the tax technicalities can be fixed, uh, um, uh, even though it's politically sensitive, they must be fixed. So we are confident that we'll move ahead and that uh, we'll, we'll have a path towards further cooperation, some form of, of tax regulation of globalization, which I think is, is what we need. And meanwhile, it could be handbags at dawn. I mean, we are literally having a bare-knuckle fight between the US and, and France on this, with, with the US imposing the tariffs on, on handbags. So we come, we come full circle from the, uh, the heights of the digital economy to sort of basic taxes on key products like... Uh, handbags, handbags. And, handbags and lipsticks, cosmetics, which is the US vision of the French, right? <laughs> handbags and lipsticks. <laughs> Pascal Saint-Amont, uh, Director of the Centre for Tax Policy at OECD. Thank you very much. Thank you. In a global chocolate war, it's Hershey against West Africa. That was a headline on Bloomberg that jumped out at me this week. We can't have a global chocolate war two weeks before Christmas. Then I read the story and found out there was a lot more resting on this than your holiday bowl of Hershey's Kisses, or chocolate orange. Leanne de Bassompierre is our Ivory Coast reporter, and she's been covering this story, and she's joining me now from Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. Uh, Leanne, it is quite complicated, this story. We should just start with the basics. Where you're sitting, Ivory Coast in West Africa, is where a lot of the world's cocoa is produced, and the... Ghana produces most of the rest. Tell me first how these two countries have tried to use the power they have in this particular crucial bit of the global economy and why we've ended up talking about war. Well, they've tried many times before to try to uh, keep the price in their favour, but it hasn't really worked until uh, last year when they decided to add a $400 premium on top of the price of the on, on top of the futures price that is and that came into effect from the 1st of October which was the start of the main crop harvest in both these two countries and as you rightly said uh, these two countries supply nearly 70% of the world's cocoa so they saying while all these multinationals are benefiting from this 100 billion dollar industry Poor farmers in Ivory Coast and Ghana are barely seeing or barely able to make ends meet and they're not seeing the fruits of, of their labor. They don't even know what the end product actually tastes like. I guess it's, it's fair to say that the Hershey's and all these big chocolate producers didn't, didn't like this very much. But what's actually happened? Why, is it, why are we now talking about war? 
Well, what happened was that when they initially announced this, which was in the middle of last year, um, there was obviously some uh, some discussions that took place with chocolate companies, with big exporters as well. Um, all of them actually came on board saying, yes, they will buy cocoa at that point price when it comes in uh, from the 1st of October. Um, so the, everyone was on board. They were on board with the fact that that needs to happen. But nobody really thought that COVID-19 was going to happen and that there would be people where people would be eating less chocolate and uh, sales would, would slump. And so uh, nobody really took that into the equation. And then what happened was that they needed to, I guess, try to find a way to, um, to basically keep their prices in check, given that they'd lost uh, quite a lot in sales. And uh, that happened. So what happened is, is that they revisited uh, this premium that they had promised to pay from the start of the uh, season, which was on the 1st of October, and tried to, in Hershey's case, they went and actually uh, bought some some beans directly from uh, the, the 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 exchange in New York and not in the physical market. And many companies were surprised by this move. Um, the governments of Ivory Coast and Ghana then said, you know, what they did means that they against uh, the four hundred dollar premium, which is called the Living Income Differential or LID. Um, they said it was a sign in the in the wrong direction that they had agreed to it, that they had spoken about it significantly. So Ivory Coast and Ghana have suspended the sustainability programs, um, which obviously is going to hurt the farmers uh, that are involved in those and the workers who are involved in those programs. So is that some would say that's a bit counterproductive that you're hurting hurting people on the ground to, to punish Hershey's? Well, things have been moving quite uh, swiftly. The story is very dynamic. And so we had on the 30th of November, uh, we had the governments of Ivory Coast and Ghana saying that they have suspended uh, Hershey's sustainability programs and any other company uh, that's involved with any sustainability programs that Hershey is involved in as well. Um, so that implicated quite a number of different companies. And uh, by the end of that week on December 4th, they then came to an agreement. Um, Hershey then recommitted to paying the uh, premium, the $400 premium uh, for the season. There is obviously a bit of history here and it's the sustainability programs, I guess, are important uh, for Hershey. And I should say there's some other big companies who are um, involved in this because there's been this tradition where they've been accused of being involved with child labor and deforestation and everything. So there's there's quite a lot on the line for these companies in terms of their reputation. Absolutely. And so I think that many of them have been very quick to, to respond to uh, in the statement that the Ivorian regulator had put out on December 4th saying they had uh, called for the suspension or suspended their sustainability program. So they reacted very quickly. Um, as you said earlier, it is a couple of weeks before Christmas. Uh, we'll have uh, other holidays where, where chocolate is essential coming up uh, next year. And so um, it is something that they want to try to find a, a solution to very quickly. And, you know, it's, they, they need each other. Ivory Coast, they need buy, Ivory Coast and Ghana, they need buyers for their cocoa beans. And these chocolate companies need cocoa. It's not that they could suddenly go and source all their cocoa needs from elsewhere in the world. These two governments, or these two countries at least, do make up nearly 70% of global cocoa production. And chocolate is not just for Christmas. I would argue it's essential most of the time, not just on <laughs> holidays. I guess if you think 
of the end result of this in trying to put a premium on the price, trying to sustain the incomes of farmers, if we end up with less cocoa being uh, bought and, God forbid, people actually eating less chocolate, uh, aren't the farmers going to end up poorer as a result of this? That is a fine balance um, that both countries and uh, the chocolate companies need to try to strike. And in fact, there was a there was huge concern that with this increase in the price that it would incentivize more farmers to go out and plant um, cocoa, that they would go out and do that in protected forest areas. Um, and so that is an essential element of the story that they that these two countries managed to keep their production in check, that they um, let their farmers know that, you know, it's not going to benefit anybody if there's going to be too much uh, cocoa in the markets that they need to cap it at a certain amount so that they can keep the prices where they need them to be. So it is a fine balance that they need to strike. And it, it all starts with actually the farmer and educating them on what needs to be done. Getting down to that small farmer that has, you know, a half a hectare, one or two hectares, to explain to him, you cannot go into protected forest because the price is high, that if there is the surplus of cocoa, it could indeed uh, bring the price down. Well, Leanne, thank you so much. Where do you think this is going? I mean, do we actually have to worry about chocolate shortages this Christmas, next Christmas, anytime soon? Um, I've just been out into the field and there is a lot of cocoa beans, at least. It doesn't seem like there's going to be much of a shortage in Ivory Coast, at least. Um, whether they will be able to maintain the price and good relations with these chocolatiers and uh, and keep the momentum going with this project with, with Ghana. Uh, we've just had the Ghanaian elections this week, so they will continue uh, the conversation around getting the best prices for their farmers and in you know, keeping uh, this joint effort up, I think that they stand a, a better chance of getting the best value for their products for their farmers. Well, when we talk about grassroots reporting on this programme, we are not kidding. We are actually going out looking at the roots of the cocoa. Uh, and it looks OK, at least um, uh, from Ivory Coast right now. Leander Bassompierre, sitting in Abidjan, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on all things economic. And remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get a lot more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to William Horobin, Pascal Saint-Amont, Leanne de Bassompierre, and her colleagues Isis Almeida and Baudelaire Mieux. Lucy Meekin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy.